Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by R. Ward Holder. Dr. Holder is Professor of Theology and Director of the Honors Program at St. Anselm College. He's also the author of several books and numerous articles on the thought of John Calvin and the Reformation era. He's co-edited a volume in 2018 with Brill on Culture and Confessional Identity and Reformation Communities. And he's here today to talk to us about his new edited volume with Cambridge University Press in 2020 titled John Calvin in Context. Dr. Holder, congratulations on the book and thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here, Zach. Well, I'm I'm thankful you're you're able to come on the show and I appreciate your flexibility with scheduling so so that we could discuss your book. Uh, But before we do that, uh, for our listeners who may be less familiar with some of some of your work, Um, Can you share a little bit more about yourself, uh, your background, and and maybe what led to uh, work on this this new volume? Sure. Uh, um, I'm from a large family of Presbyterians, uh, and my my parents had, my father was a Presbyterian minister, and my uh, mom was a school teacher, and uh, they had five children, and four went to seminary, um, which either suggests a lot of devotion or a stunning lack of imagination. And uh, I had the good fortune to end up at Princeton Theological Seminary to do my Master's of Divinity. And when I was there, there were two giants of uh, historical theology, Kalfried Froelich, who was teaching medieval and Edward Dowie, who was teaching Reformation, and especially Calvin. And I, uh, I fell under their spell and thought, this is, this is so important for the faith. This is so important for how people understand their place in the world. And um, maybe I want to do this someday. So after... Um, I did do a stint in pastoral ministry out in Wisconsin uh, and then went back and did my doctorate in uh, theology, uh, actually at Boston College and Andover Newton Theological School. And um, I've always enjoyed looking at Calvin. And, And I, Bart said about Calvin, that he was like a waterfall, like a torrent, like something he couldn't control. I always find that when I look at Calvin's thought, there's more there than I had assumed. There's more there than I had known. And and so I find it endlessly fascinating and also worthy of time uh, in an age such as ours. Well, you know, this is a really outstanding volume that you've edited. You've assembled a, a really diverse and, and qualified team of contributors that have 
you know, they have just have some really excellent essays here. Um, you know, ever since the year of Calvin's death, there's appeared works that are, you know, estimating Calvin's influence and in theology impact of, of, of his work. Um, you argue that if we want to understand Calvin, we can't miss his context. Um, is this the first book that situates Calvin within his various contexts? Is this a new sort of enterprise? And and then second, can can you tell us a little bit about why that's such an important task? So I would I would never claim to be the first book that situates Calvin within his contexts. Uh, uh, one book springs to mind. Um, uh, Alexander Ganachi's The Young Calvin, uh, which was published originally in French, uh, looked especially at Calvin's influences, uh, trying to understand how the 1536 institutes had come about. Of course, uh, Jean de Mergue, Calvin in his life and times, uh, again in French, published around 1909, uh, that's that's seven volumes, and uh, and he attempts uh, many of these same tasks. So I would not say this is the first. Um, I think at this moment in time, it represents one of the most comprehensive efforts to situate Calvin within his various contexts, and that's become more and more necessary. In, uh, in the present age for two reasons, one that, uh, over which we might grieve and the other which we might celebrate. That which we might grieve is that um, money, and yes, money, um, money may not make the world go around, but it is significant. And money for theological and historical studies has been drying up all of my life. Uh, So when I heard uh, the great Jesuit scholar John O'Malley talk about his life of learning, uh, he was moving from one fellowship to another fellowship, moving from one research institute to another research institute. Those possibilities so frequently have either completely dried up or um, or are greatly reduced. So the, that old style, I'm just going to spend the first 20 years of my career really getting this period of history correct uh, is that that is gone. Um, so that's that's one thing that's uh, that's important, uh, and and another that uh, that is as significant, I think, is that, and and this is the one to celebrate. We see a lot more effort at cross disciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary efforts at scholarship these days. Um, Because of that, we see people trying to understand Calvin who 
have, say, doctorates or their, their work is in economics, well, saying to them, just go get a doctorate, it will only take you five years, uh, that, that's simply saying, don't do that project. Instead, providing them with a place to begin to understand uh, Calvin's life and, and the way he worked in the contexts in which he lived, I think that's, that's a, better, a better habit. That's really good. Well, I, I think one of the great things about this volume is is that in addition to looking at Calvin's context um, in, in his own life, you're also addressing the context in which he's been received. Um, but f- before we get into to each of those things, the, the context of his life and then also his reception, one phrase that's going to crop up throughout the book is that of Calvin and Calvinism. Um, Dr. Holder, can you can you take us through what Calvin and Calvinism means broadly? What are scholars talking about when they use this phrase? What's the debate there? Um, and then can you can you sort of take us through some of the challenges of of reading a a, a figure like Calvin um, through our our particular um, theological traditions? The, Zach, first, it's such a helpful question, and and one that's worthy of of study in its own right. When Calvin scholars, whether historians or historical theologians or uh, constructive theologians, talk about Calvin and Calvinism, they are at best seeking to differentiate the movement that came after Calvin from Calvin's thought itself. Um, I teach undergraduates at St. Anselm College. And when I talk about Calvin, say in a Reformation course, it is not, I'm not surprised when a student says, oh, I know about Calvin. I I had a sociology uh, teacher in high school and he made us read Max Weber, and um, and and I have to engage that and say, okay, that's a that's a particular kind of reception of Calvin, but it may not be Calvin's thought itself. Um, likewise, uh, we can talk this in in churches uh, or denominations. Uh, the United Church of Christ is the historical heir of the Congregationalist tradition. They are built on a Reformed ideal, different from Presbyterianism, different from Dutch Reformed thought. Uh, So we can look at it there. We can look at it in different kinds of, different kinds of theological constructs. Mark Driscoll, the uh, the famous or notorious, however you want to call him, uh, pastor at Mars Hill Church, uh, was famous for saying, "I'm I'm a new Calvinist," but his new Calvinism rejected many things that Calvin absolutely 
argued for. And, uh, and, and other people pointed this out and it didn't bother Driscoll. So the point, uh, the point about the phrase Calvin and Calvinism is simply to differentiate Calvin from a broad movement. And, and many scholars, and I'm thinking especially of someone like Richard Muller, who taught at Calvin Theological Seminary, many of them would immediately reject the term Calvinism and go for something like the Reformed tradition. Uh, and, and that's fine. I, I don't have any, any need to hold on to that. But realizing that the tradition that followed Calvin can and does at certain points differ from his particular thought is useful. And realizing that everyone reads Calvin through some kind of particular frame of reference is also significant. And that's why I included the, some of the last material in the book that talks about the receptions of Calvin in later eras. Yeah, I think that's really well explained. I thought that might be helpful to sort of incorporate that into our discussion uh, for how this book is is going to help readers to sort of avoid uh, caricature, but but see Calvin as you as you say in the book as a complex man in a complex time. Um, well, as we as we look to the sections of the volume, we first have a set of essays on France and its influence, Part Two, Switzerland. Southern Germany and Geneva, part three, Empire and Society. Part four has essays uh, on the religious question. Part five, Calvin's influences. And finally, part six on his reception, as you've mentioned. Perhaps out of respect for your time, we, we won't chart across all of these. But as I scan some of these really brilliant essays, we do see some really important pieces that perhaps you could touch on for us. Dr. Pack's essay on Calvin's life, and then in another section, uh, Andrew Pedigree's essay on his publishing career. Um, and I want to come back to Pedigree in a, in a minute to, to talk about the development of the printing houses and what that meant for, for, for Calvin. But for now, uh, can you talk to us, especially for students new to Calvin, uh, can you talk to us about Calvin's life broadly and it, Give us an overview, if you can, of, of his life and, and, and also about his, his, his writing career. What did, what did he produce over his life? Absolutely. Um, and and Sujin's uh, Dr. Pax, uh, and she's just recently become the dean of Boston University School of Theology. Uh, her essay was to give some grounding to the student who, who didn't know Calvin, who was coming uh, almost as a blank slate. Um, so it's, it's brief, uh, but, but also really nicely done. Um, John Calvin is a, a 16th century person. He's born in 1509 in uh, Picardy, France. He is... Um, his, his father is uh, a bookkeeper for the 
local cathedral chapter in the town where he grew up, Noyon. Uh, Calvin uh, was one of several children, and his father had at least uh, two wives uh, because uh, the first wife died. Um, and, and Calvin was recognized as having intellectual promise early on, so he was, um, he was trained with the children of nobility in, uh, in the basics of grammar and rhetoric and Latin. Uh, and, and then he was granted by the church to what we call, um, well, they're, they're scholarships, but they are, they are partial livings. They are grants that should have been going to, uh, to keep a, a pastor or priest in a church, uh, but since the church was vacant, the, the amount of money that was probably supported by uh, the rents from agricultural land or something like that, uh, these, uh, these gifts were, were given to Calvin and they supported him through most of his education. Um, Calvin went off uh, at age 14 to the University of Paris. That uh, sounds amazing to us, but it was not amazing in his day. He, he's fitting into French culture. He, uh, during his time at the University of Paris, he studies uh, at, at least two colleges and, and maybe three, uh, but the first two are the Collège de la Marche and the Collège de Montaigu. And, uh, and he, he learns the basics. He gets a bachelor's degree. At some point, uh, his father runs into trouble with, um, with the cathedral, the leaders of the cathedral, and they, get, they get excommunicate him. And his father directs Calvin uh, saying, okay, no longer will we have you become, it, it's likely he was going to become a priest uh, and his father redirected him and he, be, uh, well, he didn't become, but he studied uh, law and he studied uh, with some of the best legal minds that were available in France, Pierre de l'Estoile and Andrea Alciari. Um, he comes back, uh, his father died, um, Calvin goes back to Noyon, he, uh, um, he arranges for the excommunication to be lifted so he can bury his father in hallowed ground. He surrenders his, um, his livings and, uh, and at that point, most people who study Calvin think, okay, now he's, he's seeing himself as a, 
um, member of the evangelical church. Um, that would be around between 1532 and 1534. Uh, what had he been doing since the end of his legal studies? Mostly uh, becoming a scholar. Uh, Calvin, we don't think Calvin had a deep desire to be a minister, but rather wanted to be a scholar, much like uh, a figure like Erasmus. And um, he uh, even publishes, self-publishes, which is a horrible idea for anyone. Uh, he self-published a commentary on Seneca's uh, On Clemency. And, um, and, and he, because he self-published it, he paid the printer for the costs, and he spends most of the next dozen years or even more uh, asking friends, why don't you use my book um, in your course with your students and make them buy it so I can um, get out of debt? Um, in, uh, in 1534 and 1535, the town of Munster is taken over by radical reformers. Uh, they instituted uh, communal uh, property. They instituted polygamy. Uh, they instituted a council of 12 uh, like either the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles to rule the city. Um, the uh, Catholic forces uh, surrounded the city and besieged it. And uh, when the city was betrayed in early 1535, uh, there was a great slaughter. Um, this was kind of the... the uh, the tragedy of the day. And many Catholic polemicists were saying, this is, all Protestants are like this. This is, this is what they're like. Uh, and so Calvin in 1536 writes a, uh, writes a short treatise, the, the Institutes of the Christian Religion in its original version is only six chapters. And, and he, he, he addresses it to the king of France saying, we are not your enemy. We're your best subjects. We're traditional Christians. Uh, we're revolting against uh, some, some ways that Christianity has been turned aside from its deepest meaning. Now, while Calvin's commentary on Seneca really didn't sell and was kind of an economic disaster, his Institutes of the Christian Religion flew off shelves. People loved it. Uh, the, the printer sold out the first printing uh, and was thrilled. And, uh, and that kind of made, that's Calvin's introduction to the world. Uh, the theological world, people started to know who this was. He meant to travel uh, to Strasbourg from, um, from Basel, where uh, his first book had been published. 
because of a war, he detoured through Geneva. Geneva was a small town, and uh, and he was recognized. The person who recognized him went to the pastor of the town, Guillaume Farrell, and said, hey, that, that new hot scholar is here. Farrell went to him and said, I want you to help me reform Geneva. <laughs> Calvin said, oh, thank you so much. No, I want to be a scholar and you know live with my books. And, um, and Farrell said, uh, well, Pharrell cursed him and said, you know, may God give you no peace in this life ever if you don't stay and help. And Calvin seems to have taken him seriously. Uh, so he stayed in, uh, stayed in Geneva for the next two years. Um, in 1538, he and Pharrell were thrown out of town by the city council uh, over a debate on uh, the right way to administer the sacrament of communion. Um, this was deeply distressing to Calvin. He goes, uh, you know, 15 miles down the road and, and writes a letter to the city fathers saying, did you really mean it? I'd, I'd really love to keep on pastoring. And, and they wrote back and said, if you come back, we will kill you. Uh, we will execute you. So he went to Strasbourg, uh, where he had great, um, it, it was a wonderful place for him. He spent three years there. He met and married his wife. He uh, had great colleagues. Uh, you know, Strasbourg was a much more significant town. Uh, there were a number of printers in town, so there was great print culture. And Calvin was given a small church and told, you know, minister here, and he was helped. So it was kind of his apprenticeship and a far more successful one. By 1541, uh, Geneva had, um, had recognized that they needed a better leader, uh, and people wanted Calvin back. And and Calvin is writing to other, uh, to his friends saying, yeah, I'd, I'd really rather not. Uh, that's, that's such a cross. I don't need. Finally, he accepts, goes back to Geneva in 1541, and he will stay there until his death in 1564, um, rarely leaving the city. Um, his output, uh, as I said, he, he, published in 1536 his, the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. In 1539, he republished it, now aimed at the training of ministers, and it had grown from six to 17 chapters. Uh, in uh, 1550, he published it again, and now it was 21 chapters. And finally, in 1559, these are just the Latin editions. He also prepared uh, French translations by himself. But in 1559, it achieved what we, what he called the final form. Uh, and then that, by that point, it was 
four books of enclosing in, in, in 80 chapters. So it had gone from a something you could carry in your pocket to uh, a tome that uh, he believed was a summary of all piety. Uh, along the way, we think he preached, uh, Calvin preached four or five times per week. Uh, and so he, uh, and, and the French refugee community in Geneva arranged for someone to take his sermons down in shorthand, which were then uh, passed on to longhand and were printed. And so we have thousands of Calvin's sermons, uh, thousands, far more than almost, I, I'm saying almost because I don't have perfect knowledge of every writer of sermons in the Reformation, but my my guess is we've got more of Calvin's sermons than, than anyone else in, uh, in Reformation Europe. Um, but that wasn't enough. Uh, he published commentaries on every book of the New Testament except Revelation and 2nd and 3rd John. He published... Uh, Commentaries and lectures on uh, Old Testament books, um, about 20 books of the Old Testament. So, and he wrote a great number of either short doctrinal treatises, and by short I mean anything 150 pages or fewer, or um, polemical treatises. Uh, going into verbal battle with someone, and it's a polemical age. Um, so he very much, uh, you know, Andrew Pedigree is a fantastic scholar, um, and his essay on print culture in the early modern period uh, is one of many gems in in the in the book. Gems, not because I picked him, but because he's such a fantastic scholar. And um, and Calvin really took advantage of that culture. Well, that's, that's really, a really helpful. Long answer. Really yeah, long no, answer. To a <laughs> Sorry. No, that's really thorough and helpful. And you mentioned print culture, and I definitely want to uh, ask more about that. Um, but maybe first, can we look at this? This short section, Empire and Society, um, where in terms of early modern context, Calvinists fit right in the middle of, of you know, the transformation of all of Europe, just in, in terms of culture, religion, military, you name it. And uh, so there's there's some really interesting things to say here, too. Can you, can you talk some about that? Absolutely. Um, you know, Calvin writes a treatise to... Uh, to Charles V, uh, saying, here's the right way to reform the church. Uh, we're pretty sure Charles never read it uh, and, and didn't, and by that point, Charles was, Charles, the die was cast, 
after the Augsburg Confession and and the Diet of Augsburg, Charles was not going to open up to evangelicals. But Calvin is living in this time where politics and religion are inseparable. Uh, we we love to say, especially I'm an American, and we we love to say, well, they shouldn't have anything to do with each other, or we say, well. There's a correct way for uh, politics and religion to, uh, to be related. Um, we, we don't know what that is. Uh, and certainly Calvin and the movers and shakers of the 16th century were hammering it out. So... Charles V is the grandson of uh, Maximilian I. He is a power and will lead wars against Protestants, most specifically the, the Schmalkaldic War. Uh, the French wars of religion occur at, at this time. Um, those political questions are only some of them. Uh, another big question, what shall we do with the Jews? Which is considered not a religious, but a, a political question. Uh, and different nation states answered that uh, differently. Um, Jesse Sponholtz's essay on refugees is, is an effort to bring in, um, in about... 2010 or 2011, Nick Terpstra uh, wrote a, a history of the Reformation, looking at it as a huge refugee event. You know, all of these decisions, all of these wars, all of these issues had winners and losers, and losers normally or frequently left. And and then there was the question of, well, where can we go? Uh, and, um, and, and literally, the history of the North American continent would be quite different if some uh, people seeking a place where they could have their religion the way they wished it had not arrived on these shores. Um, so these are, these are really important questions that, that demonstrate um, how significant these issues were. And I'll give you just one set of examples. So as, as Calvin was trying to hammer out a consensus with uh, the pastors in Zurich on the meaning of the Eucharist, uh, and that that document has come to be called the Consensus Tigurinus. And Calvin keeps trying to open the door in letters to uh, the chief pastor in Zurich, Heinrich Wollinger. He keeps trying to open the door to the Germans and says, you know, if we could do this, uh, and, and if we could do this, and, and Bollinger won't have any of it. But 
Calvin is saying in his letters, we need to pay attention to creating a pan-Protestant theology which will allow and support a pan-Protestant response to the threat that we are facing. Um, Bullinger never saw it the same way, but that's, that's how, that's why a historical theologian like me simply can't ignore the issues of politics, of alterity, you know, the Jewish question, of the way that different peoples are treated. All of these are impacting well, literally everything else. That's great. Yeah, and I think you make the, the case well that that these perspectives are so closely tied to the particular context and developments in history. Um, as we think about developments in history, you, you list three developments in history that change the character of the early modern period. I'm wondering if we can get into some of those. Can you tell us what those three things are? What did they mean for Calvin? Right. Um, so for Calvin, and, and what you're talking about is scholarship, uh, print, and polemic. Right. Uh, and for Calvin, these are um, enormously important. They, uh, they, well, let's let's take them one at a time. Um, so. Scholarship. Calvin is, at least at the beginning of his career, trying to be a scholar, not, not a biblical humanist, not something like that. He's trying to take advantage of this newly opening world that comes out of the, the new humanistic scholarship. And he wants to be part of it. And he believes that's what will make him happy. Um, there's, there's a sense in which Calvin is kind of an accidental reformer. And uh, Bruce Gordon, who wrote one of the very, very best uh, biographies of Calvin, and that came out in 2009, uh, it's simply called Calvin, um, Bruce Gordon points out that Calvin was both shy and had a nasty temper. And that's, that's I, I think those two are related. Uh, what he really wanted was to be that kind of uh, scholar who, the, the, old, the old vision of kind of an Oxford Don who, goes to his office and spends all day and all night reading and comes out and gives a lecture kind of grumpily and then goes back to, to reading. Uh, that's kind of what Calvin wanted to be. And, and so falling into being a pastor and, and a, a leader of a city's church, because really... Geneva is a city-state. Um, that was probably not high on his list of things he wanted to do, 
and and yet it changes everything. So so he's constantly trying to keep in touch with that new scholarship. And we see that in the way he approaches the scripture. We see it in the way he works, even pastorally. Calvin, uh, one of the reasons, the amazing things that we have Calvin's sermons is that he didn't write them. Uh, what apparently he did was go up into the pulpit with the Greek Testament, read it, translating on site, and then preach it in an expository fashion. Uh, now, he didn't have time to write it, so uh, but so many points there. Calvin was, um, it, you know, a via trilinguicus, uh, a, a man of three languages. His Latin was considered excellent. His uh, his Greek, very good. Um, we know his Hebrew wasn't as good as uh, his Greek or Latin, um, but he still would have been one of the better, uh, especially pastor scholars out there. So Calvin maintains that. We've already talked about print some. Uh, this is the, the generation, the world in which uh, print becomes enormously important. Uh, Andrew Pedigree has, in a different essay, pointed out that the by the time of the Reformation, Gutenberg's press is decades old. This is not a brand new technology, but uh, there hadn't been a great desire to read stuff. The Reformation, or Reformations, that's my preferred term because I think that the, there are a variety of movements happening at the same historical period. Uh, they create an appetite and a number of providers who are writing short, pithy treatises that people are buying uh, and and it changes the world. It, it truly does. Uh, um, Mark Edwards wrote a book, oh gosh, now 40 years ago, um, that pointed out that at the height of Luther's power, there were four or five printing houses in Wittenberg. And Wittenberg was a town of about 3,000. Uh, and, and mostly they're pumping out Luther and Melanchthon and other figures from, uh, from the Luther circle. Uh, meanwhile, Rome uh, and the Vatican, wasn't the Vatican, but the, the Pope and the Papal Curia did not trust this new technology nearly so much. Uh, there was one printing press. So, uh, so getting that word out is so significant. And finally, polemic. And and I got to say, um, uh, Amanda Urich's um, article on polemic in the early modern is fantastic. Uh, frequently, we um, 
frequently we look at polemic as kind of uh, that's not that's not the real stuff. That's just that's below our not really below our attention, but below what we should be paying attention to. We should only pay attention to the treatises and the uh, commentaries, things like that. When we do that, we misunderstand the age. Uh, Amanda points out so well that defending the truth, and, and anyone who wrote a polemic, that's what he believed he was doing. No one in the 16th century writes an attack on someone and says, well, it's just because I hate him. Or I'm just having fun and we're playing a game and and I'm just uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Nobody does that. What they are doing is saying, no, my position is so important that I need to sh uh, and, and yours is so wrong that I need to show that in a form that will be read and remembered. Um, these all, as I said, uh, were enormously important for Calvin. Calvin, uh, some of his polemics, and, and the difference between a polemic and a treatise uh, is totally in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, we know much of what we know about Calvin's doctrine of uh, double predestination from uh, his attack called On the Eternal Predestination of God. It's definitely a polemic, but it also sets out what he believed on predestination. Uh, these are... Again, those kind of significant things that if we don't understand the world in which Calvin is moving, we don't really get him. Yeah, well, I think that's really, really well said. And, you know, so we know we know Calvin wrote, he taught, he preached massive amounts. But then we get to the question of what stirred Calvin to write? What type of network? Was it a, was it a broad network, a narrow one? What type of network sources was was he interacting with? Um, and then second, how how much of Calvin's influences were were positive compared to negative? And, and by that, I just mean, were, did he ever encounter a critical audience? Uh, the the short answer to your last question is absolutely. Uh, but um, yeah, he he very much is uh, a man of his time. And so he's, well, Erica Rummel has written a great book on, um, on humanism in the early modern period. And so much of what is going on in that world are networks, networks of letter writing, especially letter writing. Um, and and letter writing that uh, that takes seriously the, the form of a letter, but also is always trying to present a certain uh, view. For instance, at, at the end of uh, 
I'm going to steal something else from Andrew Pedigree. Andrew wrote a book on Luther called uh, Brand Luther, and and his argument throughout is that Luther is is very conscious of his own brand, and he's he's trying to feed it and point it in a particular way. Calvin is as well. Uh, Calvin doesn't have a brand in the same way that Luther did, but he is trying to work with that. And, and a great example, near the end of his life, he writes to Pharrell um, and says, you know, we've always been such good friends. We've, uh, I'm, I'm passing on, uh, but, and I will miss you. You know, all this, he says two or three times that, that their friendship has been unshakable. Um, that's great. It would be nice if it were also true. We know that it wasn't. Uh, Calvin and Pharrell had fallen out over Pharrell. Pharrell was like, at this point, in his 80s, and he was marrying a 16-year-old girl. And, and Calvin uh, was absolutely upset and said, that's inappropriate, and you shouldn't do it, and this can't be love, and all, all the things that, that one might say to a friend who seems to be making a fool of himself. Um, his network was fairly broad. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of what we want to call Lutherans in it. Uh, Melanchthon was, uh, Calvin thought of Melanchthon as a friend, uh, but he didn't really grasp, Calvin didn't really grasp uh, what the, the tenuousness of Melanchthon's position within Lutheranism, especially after Luther's death, uh, that, that there were some Luther followers who, uh, who were angry at Melanchthon and, say, and when they would hear someone say, well, I'm, I must be okay with Lutherans because I'm uh, a friend of Melanchthon, that that was uh, a, call, a, a call to battle. Um, on the other hand, his, uh, his network is fairly broad outside that. He writes to people in, uh, uh, on the island of uh, Great Britain, well, at that point, Britain. Uh, he writes to um, people in Poland. He writes to people in Italy. Uh, and, and he both writes kinds of letters of spiritual counsel and kind of where he's taking a pastoral and, and fatherly, fatherly role and uh, writes these kind of friend letters uh, that that demonstrate a, a kind of uh, generosity of spirit. Calvin could be a wonderful friend, but a devastating enemy. Um, he had uh, a true mix of positive and critical audiences that that we kind of try to um, get at. You know, Michael Bruning points out. Uh, you know Calvin's friends, how how they are looking at 
him and, and writing about him. Uh, Calvin's critics, as well as Calvin's Lutheran critics. So I, I would say uh, among Lutherans, Anabaptists or radicals and, uh, and Catholics, he had an enormous number of critical readers. It's very clear they are reading him. Uh, and in frequent places, they are then writing against him, which causes him then to write back. Um, Calvin will write, um, writing a treatise against Calvin is an invitation. Uh, he rarely lets something go. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Holder, as, as we start to bring this conversation to a close now, I, I want to ask a little bit more about Calvin's reception. We started with some of that. Um, it, in one of the essays an author describes here uh, in, in particular locations in early modern life that, that while Calvinism as a system, it had done more to shape you know, ideas and experience than, than anything else, yet it had still by the end of the 17th century, it had had its day. McNutt, Stanglin, Gordon Gribben, they, they have really great essays here that kind of fill out this reception section at, at the end of the book. Um, and the picture that, that seems to emerge is that across the early modern landscape and, and all the way up to the 21st century, that, that Calvin's been received in much different ways in, in different times. Can, can you comment just a little bit on that? Well, Calvin definitely has been uh, both, um, he has both received the gifts and the slings and arrows of reception across the last 500 years. Uh, Calvin was born in 1509, so in 2009 there, was, there were a series of uh, conferences and other remembrances of Calvin. Um, I would not ever count Calvin out, uh, partly because it's happened before. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century in American uh, theological education, Calvin doesn't show up a lot outside of certain kind of um, ethnic communities. So, you know, if, if you were Christian Reformed or uh, what became the Reformed Church of America, both of which are forms of the Dutch Reformed in America, uh, they were still reading Calvin. Very few others were. Then there's a Calvin Renaissance uh, post-World War II that one could say we're even on, uh, we're still in it. Um, there is, uh, I mentioned Mark Driscoll, people like John Pieper will say, uh, you know, this, there's, there's this new Calvinism that, that is uh, significant for evangelicalism. Um, so, yes, there are times when we can say the influence of Calvin seems to be on the wane. Uh, whether those ever are final, um, 
I, I'm a, I'm a historian. I'm way better at looking backwards than forwards. <laughs> but when I look forwards, I, I tend to uh, project the past, and it, it suggests there will be ups and downs, and, and Kelvin will go in and out of style. Um, that kind of makes sense. He's a person who makes a lot of sense out of a world in turmoil. Uh, so when you're living in a world of turmoil, Calvin makes more sense than when everything has achieved a, a kind of positive stasis. Um, I'll, let, I'll let your listeners, Zach, figure out whether we're in a time of turmoil or not. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dr. Holder, it, it's, I think that's a great place to end. And, and, and I appreciate your answers there on, on Calvin's reception and all the rest. Uh, before we go, though, and as I'm closing up my Calvin in Context book here, can you tell our listeners what writing projects you plan to work on next and what they might expect from you in the future? Sure. Um, my next project, uh, which I'm working on currently, is uh, a book on, it's a monograph on Calvin and his appropriation of the Christian tradition. I think uh, that far too frequently we accept the idea that uh, Protestants simply read the Bible and Catholics uh, paid attention to tradition and they they really don't meet. that. I don't find the historical evidence to back back that up, and I and I think that has enormous implications for our lives, even in, in Western culture today. Uh, that's my next, and beyond that, I'm going to do a book on Calvin's doctrine of the Church because it seems to me um, Christians have forgotten that there is a place for the Church in Christianity. Really good. We'll be sure to look out for both of those. Uh, for now, though, thank you for producing this book, John Calvin in Context. It's out now with Cambridge University Press. And Dr. Holder, thank you so much for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Zach. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.